You're listening to CounterTalks, Canada's podcast for the equipment and event rental industry. CounterTalks is a presentation of Canadian Rental Service Magazine. Now here's your host, Patrick Flannery. All right, my friends, here today with Andrew Botteril from Deloitte. Andrew, how are you? Great. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. Good to, good to see you. Good to talk to you. Um, I uh, uh, what, what kicked off this discussion was uh, we got some email coming around uh, uh, a white paper that uh, Deloitte had, had produced, and I, I guess you had written, um, about, uh, about fuel prices and the outlook for 2023. And I thought, well, you know, there's there's not nothing much more top of mind than that, especially with uh, all the inflation and everything uh, going on. So I thought, hey, let's get on here and uh, and have a little have a little more extensive discussion about it, and maybe go over uh, some of the points in the white paper, and maybe go beyond that. We'll see uh, we'll see where the things take us. But um, anyways, Andrew, uh, why don't we start by uh, just giving us a little uh, a little introduction of yourself and uh, and what you do with Deloitte? Yeah. So my name is Andrew Botter. I'm a partner in the Canadian firm for Deloitte, um, and also one of my uh, one of my most fun roles is I lead our industry, oil and gas industry, and chemicals for Deloitte. So I just make sure that when we we do a lot of work and across Canada and globally, I just make sure that we're connected across all of our biggest clients. We're thinking about what our real big industry needs are, and when it comes to where do we invest and what do we do and where do we think industry is going to go. That's that's my job to keep on top of that, and and also do media here and there and, and yeah. talk, talk about what things are looking like in the sector and, and, and advocate or, or uh, try to find ways that we can help our clients. Well, I appreciate it for sure. I, uh, I've, I've, I've spoken for, uh, for years to uh, a friend of mine over at the Canadian propane association about fuel prices. Uh, and, uh, and, and boy, it's, it's an art, it can be an arcane business. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it can be, uh, it can be fairly opaque and, and, and difficult to understand for those of us not, uh, not, not really involved in it. So it's great to have an expert, uh, of your caliber, uh, uh giving us some, uh, giving us some insight here. Um, I guess let's, let's start with the, uh, the most obvious, uh, uh question, the top of mind thing. What is the outlook for 2023, Andrew? What 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 are you guys seeing, and and what do you expect to happen? Well, if you're if you remember 2022, to say it was volatile would be an understatement. With uh, the Ukraine crisis, that like that honestly turned the entire oil and gas industry on its head uh, this year mm. because Russia, being one of the largest producers um, in the world, those volumes essentially being. Uh, turned to nil or or very difficult to put those volumes around the world means that the rest of the world had to figure out where it was all going. So we had a lot of changes in supply chains and volumes moving from some countries to others that wouldn't have historically done that. So we had an extremely volatile year. It ended a little smoother, not quite as expensive as it was through the summer in the Ukraine crisis, but prices of prices for oil were still relatively high, right? And when it comes to 2023, your question, the question is, I think 2023 is going to look a lot like the back half of 2022. Okay. So still quite expensive, right? We're going to see oil price. We're, I'm still expecting to see something like $80 on average. I'm still expecting to see a lot of volatility. And the volatility is going to come from, you know, the stuff that we're reading in the news right now that continues to change. Is China, you know, they've dropped COVID restrictions. Is China's economy going to get up and running uh, like ours did when we came out of, out of, out of COVID? Uh, is it is it something that's going to take a week, a quarter, two quarters? Are we going to see um, China airline travel 
go up significantly. And are we going to start to see citizens travel within China? Major consumption, right? So you can imagine right now there's a lot of questions out there of how long will Ukraine go? Will Russian volumes continue to be out of the market? And I think the other big theme is the fact that while there's been a lot of trepidation, economies have woken up um, from COVID, there hasn't been a lot of investment. We haven't necessarily seen companies double their investment like they would have historically done in an $80 environment, right? So we saw companies being very guarded. So they're not necessarily, they're spending money, but they're not increasing budgets dramatically. So they're not filling a lot of supply into the market because there's a lot of questions as to what does long-term supply and demand look like. And uh, so it's going to be a tumultuous year and with relatively high oil and we'll talk natural gas prices too, but natural gas prices are going to be up as well. So. Would that would that caution be coming from uncertainty about what's going to happen with Russia and the idea that that well maybe all those supplies will come back online if that conflict comes yeah. to an end? I, I agree. So I think in in near term there's certainly some questions on what does China look like, what does Russia look like, what does all of this energy security in Europe look like? Are we going to continue to see them needing North American volumes like they have in the last year? Um, but I think the other big question marks out there. Are, you know, there's a lot of pressure on emissions. There's a lot of pressure on energy transition. Are we going to be moving uh, demand? Is, is Patrick going to be driving an electric vehicle and is Andrew going to be driving an electric vehicle to, tomorrow mm-hmm. That's and enough that's going to dramatically change demand? More in that five-year to 10-year time frame, there's that, okay, Is has demand peaked? Right. Are, so I think those questions on the speed of energy transition has made companies cautious in putting big bucks and big bets into long-term plays because they're not sure, you know, where our economies are going to go as we start to decarbonize and try to do things uh, a little bit differently. Yeah, it's different for sure because, I I mean, I remember back, I I mean, I guess I'm talking about the early 2000s here when uh, when gas hit a, a hundred a barrel or, or whatever it was there, uh, I think shortly after the Iraq war. Uh, and, um, and, and it, it obviously just, uh, the surge of investment, right? Uh, in in your, I, I didn't mention you're in Calgary. Um, you know the 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 big surge of investment, the big surge in in development and 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 drilling. Um, that 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 you're you're thinking maybe that isn't going to happen this time, or at least or at least there'll be some lag before. Well, you know, happens. I think what companies have learned in the in the in the booms that have happened since then, and and that as well is that, you know, the the returns that are made by Companies' investments on that are not in a week or two. It takes several years to pay out investments on oil and gas investments. And all of those high price environments were followed by oversupply. So I think a lot of companies got burned in the last, you know, especially the last 10 years on having to take a lot of debt, um, low prices, struggled to get that. Right now, they're really happy to have decreased debt last year. They want to decrease debt a lot more this year. They really like the idea of having a little bit more financial control and stronger balance sheets. So um, coupling that with the other earlier comments is, you know, they're not willing to stick their necks out quite as far as they used to um, and are cautious. They've been they've been burned before. And and so they want to be really careful. And and fundamentally, we are going to see demand for all of all hydrocarbons change in the coming decade. Right where that's going to go and what the solutions are going to be um will uh it's going to be geography by geography by geography mm-hmm. and how you know some people will do more hydro some people will do more natural gas fired electricity 
right? Others are going to have to do more wind and some geographies are going to have a lot of changes. And I think the industry wants to see where some of that is going to land before um, placing the bets. But what's interesting is our energy companies are going to be the ones putting money in all of those technologies as well, yeah. right? So like they are going to be true energy companies, right? They're going to be helping to heat our homes. They're going to be helping to get us down the road. It just might be an electric vehicle and charged by uh, a large a large oil company that you know about, right? So yeah. um, to put the infrastructure in to be able to handle that. So it's going to be a really interesting decade. We're really excited as consultants to help companies through that, but it means that you know, companies are a little cautious as they're, as they're handling their cash right now. And they're trying to get returns back into people's pockets. They haven't returned a lot of uh, profits into shareholders' pockets in the last decade, and they've had an opportunity now to do it. So it's one of the highest performing uh, sectors on the stock market in the last year has been energy companies because they've actually been profitable. Unfortunately for consumers, um, prices have helped them out. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, uh, talking a bit about natural gas too. Um, one of the things, I mean, obviously the, the European situation uh, has been one of the the, the the sort of the big snarls in the whole helping out Ukraine business, right? Um, and, and trying to and trying to get uh, natural gas supplies to them for the winter there, um, and uh, because they were they they became stupidly, in my opinion, uh, uh, really very dependent on Russia for all of that. And uh, and and then there was a, there was there was a lot of talk about having to bring these liquefied natural gas ports online uh, in order to uh, be able to ship gas from other parts of the world uh, and supply. It, it, had, it was in any of your research there. Uh, uh, can you give me an assessment of where that's at? I mean, is this something that uh, that uh, uh, they, like it seems to me building a natural a liquefied natural gas capability at a port is a pretty big deal that probably takes years. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, you know, if we go back 10 to 15 years, the, the Canadian sector is exceptionally gas rich mm -hmm. um, basin, right? Now we do have a lot of oil sands and we have a lot of oil that we ship down to the US and everything, but we are a very gas rich basin. We have a lot of natural gas and we ship a lot of natural gas to the US. There was always this belief that we have all this resource, we should be getting LNG, liquefied natural gas. Um, you gotta get it to a coast. You got to get it on a ship. You got to turn it cold. You can turn it on and get it onto a ship, right? Um, we had a lot of opportunity for that. And we really only got, so one big project got over the line, uh, one by the name of LNG Canada, that's going to be on the West Coast in Kitimat. It's in the middle of construction. There are some smaller projects on the West Coast, um, but, and that's going to feed Asia. Now you look at the that facility, that, fits, that facility is a massive investment. 20 plus billion dollars um, requires a pipeline over the over the mountains um, and uh, and in honesty is you know kind of 10 to 12 years from inception to to turning it on now we could certainly do the next one quicker but it's not in it's in five seven years kind of thing is what it would take and it takes a long time to get projects approved in Canada so it was a really competitive market in that time frame that I talked about and Canada missed a window. Like we got a couple projects considered and through the U S has put many more on the Gulf coast of the United States. Right now they have longer shipping routes to Asia, right? They have to go through the canal, mm -hmm. um, the Panama canal. But despite that, 
they've still managed to be more competitive, get more LNG plants built and get them approved and done and turned on. And that's what fed Europe. That's what saved Europe this winter was the LNG plants in the, in, in uh, the Texas Gulf coast. Um, mm. Canada missed the boat. And I, I, I mean that literally, I guess. And yeah. <laughs> um, there's East coast is always difficult because our infrastructure and our pipelines aren't made to take uh take gas to the to the east coast as efficiently or as easily it takes even uh harder approvals and investment but i think we we kind of missed the boat and we're feeling it now because we we see the we see the opportunity that the u.s has has delivered to europe in the last couple in the last year i'd say with ukraine and uh it means something now the good news is is that for every volume that leaves the u.s in a boat to europe is an extra volume that they likely need from us and they bring down. So we still saw really good natural gas prices through 2022 and we'll see, you know, very good natural gas prices for producers in 2023 as well. So it's going to be big LNG, a lot of opportunity. I still want to see more of those projects in Canada, um, but getting approvals and getting them done is a, is a tough feat. So there's lots of good projects out there working hard and hopefully we can get a couple more over the line. And cause I think it is really important to the next, 10 to 20 years uh, to transition off of some, there's a lot of countries that are still burning coal and natural gas is seen as a, as a great alternative and straddle energy that gets you nice base load. You can turn it on and turn it off very quickly and you don't have to wait for wind to blow or sun to shine. Right. And so that base load can be really important and, and, uh, and way better doing that with natural gas than coal. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great opportunity there. And, uh, I uh, I wish we were grabbing it with both hands without getting too political, but yeah. uh, at any rate, the um uh okay turning back uh, just turning back to the white paper a little bit I guess uh, one thing that always occurs to me when I'm when I'm reading these is uh, is 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 where do the numbers come from Andrew can you can you give us some insight into how Deloitte uh, I, I, I comes up with 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 forecasts and 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 predictions and 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 an idea well, of what's going to happen. For sure. So this morning we talked a lot about supply and demand. We look a lot at that, understanding some of the dynamics around the globe and making sure that we're paying attention to that. But uh, really, some of the most valuable information of the futures market. So what are people willing to pay for for that natural gas, for natural gas to be delivered today, tomorrow, next month, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, right? It's an indication of sentiment. It tells you, does does the world think that uh, price is going to go down or going to go up over the next two years? And so those are some of the most valuable pieces. And then looking at that with supply and demand and understanding um, how that sentiment fits in with current dynamics, too. So that's that's really the big focus. Hmm. Well, I always uh, I, I'm always amazed to, uh, to to see that people are uh, are often able to be fairly close on these things. And uh, and that that that's, you know, aside from something crazy breaking out like war in Europe. But <laughs> we try. There's, there's always a piece of news that surprises us. Yeah, and, you can't. Uh, and you got to react. Yeah. Yeah, can't do too much about that. Uh, talk to me a bit about about, about volatility. And I, I, I got to, I, I, you know, aging myself here. I mean, it, it seemed like through the, well, after the first Iraq war, uh, uh, and then there the, the, the was a stabilization. And then it just seemed for, for years that gas prices... Uh, uh, God had to be the better part of a decade or more. Um, just you know, moved slowly or not at all, and 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 in very long, you know, it, it, a longer cycle, right? And then and then for the last, 
I don't know, 20 years, maybe last 15 years. It, it just seems like it's it's these spikes and valleys and 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 it's flying all over the place. It, it, big big picture, Andrew. What what accounts for that? Do you do, do you have an explanation for that? That's a it's a great observation. And I think when we look back to those steadier days, yeah, it was um supply supply was brought on slowly and demand didn't move dramatically there's always geopolitical there's always a war that can go and and right. uh and and turn everything on its head but take those situations out what we had is a very stable view of what supply was and demand met that really quickly so you had something that didn't really move a lot and it was relatively known and you knew what you expected for supply next year or the year after what really happened is Canada and the U.S. specifically, we screwed it up. So, and what we did is we found shales, right? Right. And and what shales meant is we had a whole lot of resource available, and very quickly we could spend a lot of capital and bring on a lot of production in. I'm not saying weeks, but definitely in months to a year, right? So, and then what what happened is is the dynamic around the world is that. The primary producers moved away from the Middle East that was relatively well controlled with OPEC, and it turned into more of a North American picture with far more production coming out of North America. And But that production could come and go, depending on access to capital and anything else. So what all of a sudden happened was when the debt market became tough or when uh, stock markets were really difficult, um, you had people unable to access the capital or able to access capital. So people would drill or stop and drill and stop. And so what you had is you had lots of volumes that could come on in a year um, and then next year not be there because mm -hmm. stock performance was down or energy companies' shares weren't good. So you had people's budgets moving and those budgets brought on lots of production, but that production also had a very steep decline, right? So when you had a lot of production, six months later, that production was a lot less just because of how tight the rock is that you're producing the oil from, so or natural gas. So it just meant that we had this, this go or slow or go or slow type environment. Mm -hmm. And that's what created a really um, volatile market is there was the dynamics of the power circle of where capital was going and where it was being spent. Hmm. And given and given all that, COVID must have been a massive shock to the industry because you had a, a sudden, at least for a few months, the initial, I'm going to say six months there, you, you you must have had almost a total shut off of demand. Well, like if you if you look at a lot of stuff continued going on, right? And that's right. what we learned after a few couple months is ships still needed to move and move stuff around the globe and all of that kind of stuff, right? But some of the big things that changed is you and I drove a lot right. less. We right. didn't travel near as far if we did. Um, we certainly didn't go to an airport and got on an airplane for the better part of a year and a half. So when you take that big chunk of um, consumption out of the globe, it was dramatic, right? Now, yeah. what happened is, is we didn't have a complete and utter collapse of oil prices, right? Because no. what we found was those declines that I talked about from those other stuff, you know, it was kind of natural. It meant that they certainly drilled a lot less and they weren't as, uh, they didn't need to go and spend a lot of capital because demand wasn't necessarily there, but we didn't have a complete and utter collapse, right? Um, 
that's what the fear was in the first few months. But then you realize there's a whole bunch of the world that still needed to go on and we still needed to move goods around the world and this train still ran and, and we all still needed to heat our homes and all of that kind of stuff. So demand wasn't a complete destruction, but when you take that much demand out of the system and, and do that for a long time, and when I say a long time, like we're really talking two years of demand erosion, I would say, um, that that doesn't come back quick, right? And it also means that companies didn't spend as much capital in those years, meaning now when we want more production, when Ukraine needs it, um, it's not there. Like companies need to go and deploy capital and they'll bring it on over the next year. So um, it's that it has ripple on effects that carry on is what I'm trying to say. But Okay. Um yeah, speaking of other uh, impacts to, well, I guess this is an impact of supply. Back, back to the Ukraine war. Um, one of the things that was in the white paper that I found interesting uh, uh, was you mentioned a price cap on Russian oil that uh, that I guess the uh, governments of the world or somebody is trying to is trying to impose. Uh, uh, th that was the first I had heard of that. Uh, what um, what give me give me the, what, what's that all about? It was it, it was. A very interesting thing. It's something that hasn't really ever been done before. I guess some some restrictions on individual countries like Iran and North Korea have happened in the past, but nothing of the kinds of volumes that we're talking about here. But ultimately, ultimately, what the well, I'll say allies um, wanted to make sure of is that Russia wasn't going to be able to continue to profit off of high prices for oil that they did get into the market. Now, most Russian crude needed to get onto a ship and needed to go somewhere else uh, to be bought. And most of those ships are owned and run by ally countries. So Russian volumes weren't really out there too dramatically. But for the Russian volumes that did get out there, the world kind of said, hey, anybody who's going to do this, and pretty well every ally country uh, signed up to this, is we don't need them to profit dramatically on it. We don't want to be feeding the Russian um uh, economy right now Gee, yeah. and that's what the cap was about the cap was about just making sure that hey any volumes that did get out there and they needed to likely go on a ship from a country that uh agreed with this um shouldn't be done at a high profit for for russia it was an in interesting move it didn't make a huge dramatic move really most russian volumes have been pinched out of the market and most most countries didn't really want to participate in in taking Russian volumes, because once we got into the fall and into winter here, um, supply and demand was a little bit well known. And if you need a if you need a barrel of oil, you can probably get it now versus summer was a little bit dramatic as the Europe was trying to fill supply. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I love the geopolitical stuff. I know it isn't very relevant to the price of the pump, but I, I well, I suppose it always ends well, up being. It absolutely it. is, right? Yeah. It absolutely is because that price of oil, it's the input, that's the first input cost that goes into making gasoline. And that price of oil, we either, it either goes to a refinery or it goes onto a ship and it goes to another country and to their refineries. And so you got to compete and pay for it. We don't, we don't get cheap oil here because we have it because that oil could be. That oil can be sold to the U.S., so you can be put on a boat and go elsewhere, right? So we got to compete for it, and that's a, that's a free market economy, and 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 it that's the unfortunate thing of is yeah, that it's just how it works. It it's a global, it it's a global market, and and yeah. yeah, exactly that 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 you have it doesn't really matter so much, exactly. Unless you unless you put in a nice energy policy like Trudeau in the seventies, which I know being in Calgary, we think, won't touch on that. Yeah, yeah, we won't get we won't get into that. My dad's still <laughs> talking about that. So, <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> the um, 
Um, actually, so staying on the geopolitical, while I've got you here, I've got to ask. My big thing when 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 the whole Ukraine thing broke out was was I was going uh, okay. Russia's got to find somewhere to sell their oil, and 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 like you say, all the allied countries have basically have basically tried to shut it off to the extent that they can. I I think Europe has cheated a little bit here and there, but but they've 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 done what they had to do, maybe. Um, but but tell me this. What is your sense? Is is Russia being able, or or is it happening that Russia is being able to sell oil to China? Because that was my thing. Was I was going? That's the out for Russia. If they can make oil sales to China, they're they're they they've got a source of income. I've certainly heard the talks of that, and there's certainly been. Ultimately, I think that um, early in the crisis, I believe that was likely the case, but. Um, now uh, I'm not so certain that's okay. the case, and I think, and I think that was, you know, when the price was 120 dollars a barrel, and everyone was wondering where's where's the next barrel going to come from, and there was the panic in the market. I think there was a lot more, um, you know, there's a willingness, like you said, Europe took Europe took yeah, Russia Europe took like, more than they should everybody, have. Yeah. And I think everybody looked hard, long and hard at it. Um, I think now with a little bit better supply and demand dynamics, I'm not sure. Um, it's as as material as it was, and okay. any numbers that we've seen from Russia is that Russian production is down, and down okay. dramatically because they're not investing and they're not, and infrastructure is an issue, and it's not as reliable as it was in the past. So, production is down, at least from the numbers that we see. But you never know where all that comes from nowadays, in the in a you know a situation like we have now. Man, they 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 can't they can't go on like that. That that country is one hundred percent reliant on its on its on its oil sales. Uh, I mean, that that that's that's going to be, uh, yeah. I, I, it, it's it's only a matter of time, in my opinion. But anyway, anyways, before I get us both targeted by uh, uh, international assassins here, we'll move on to uh, something else. <laughs> um, oh well, one thing, uh, yeah. So one other thing that was in the white paper that raised my eyebrows was uh, you mentioned a leak in the Keystone pipeline, and yeah. this is totally my ignorance. But I was under the impression Keystone had been canceled and didn't exist. So Keystone, there is a Keystone pipeline that is and produces and sends a significant amount of volumes to the U.S. The the one that you read about in the news forever and ever and ever, amen, yeah. uh, was the Keystone expansion. And that was an expansion of that pipeline. Oh, that okay. expansion was the one that was on again, off again, on again, off again. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, woe, woe is me type tale uh, with, um, you know, we had multiple presidential uh, multiple U.S. presidents come on and off and on, on that pipeline. It was certainly a hot potato, um, but the the one itself, the Keystone itself that was running, was uh, was the one that had a leak in. Uh, it was in December time frame, and my understanding is that pipeline's back up and running. Okay, good. Yeah. That clarifies that significantly. I wasn't aware. There you go. The okay. Um, be- before we get to the last bit. Um, um, I just, I, I want to go again, like, okay. So at the pumps, what do we think we're going to see price wise, uh, going, going through, going through 2023, this, this continuing sort of slow step down in prices that we saw at the end of 2022, or, or maybe even more stabilization. I think more stabilization around kind of what we saw in October, November, December Okay, um, is where we're likely going to see price at the pump. And I would also say, our price of natural gas um, mm. is also going to look really similar, right? In that four to five dollars and an MCF, 
um, you know, uh, we could still see some pretty elevated natural gas prices. There's still a lot of winter to go. I know we're just defrosting from uh, the last cold snap that we all took, mm -hmm. um, but there's still a lot of winter to go. So we could see some months of some elevated natural gas pricing, uh, but we still think it's going to be relatively robust for the year with, you know, four to $5 per MCF type prices. So, and that's pretty expensive. That's almost double what it was the winter before and the winter before that too. So, um, so turn your thermostat down a notch or two if you can. So what should, as, as, as I said, our, our audience here are rental store owners. Uh, uh, they're uh, often responsible for fueling up the equipment that they rent. Well, they pretty much always are. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, they uh, occasionally supply uh, 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 some fuels as well. Um, what should rental store owners be hoping happens to? I'm going to say to make fuel prices go down. I think I think overall lower prices are better for our industry. Um, what, what what should what should they be hoping happens in Canadian policy in in geopolitical stuff uh uh what 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 should they be lobbying for um i think we should uh if if we want to see lower more stable um energy prices i think what we we need to see is an environment that makes oil and gas companies go out and spend money again mm. right so one uh we'll see robust market good good view to what demand looks like a few years from now and stable policy that supports that um, I think we should hope for a slow, steady rise of China and not a dramatic need for global energy. Because if we see China's economy really start to roar and need a, need a lot of energy, we could see ourselves, you know, trying to fill uh, trying to fill Chinese energy needs and then competing for volume. So if we see something that's, you know, that they're able to do a lot of their fuel themselves and handle a lot of that and not go to the market and uh, dramatically, and we see kind of a slower emergence of China. I think that would be quite good uh, for lower, more, more stable energy prices. And then, honestly, when you look at when you look around, it's like when it, when I say we need a pol uh, we need policies that promote our energy companies to spend money to put volumes into the market. I mean, you know, there's been talk about windfall taxes, for example. Some jurisdictions have done these windfall taxes, which is basically energy companies have had a very robust 2022 with high prices, right? And now some governments around the world are looking and saying, well, you know, we now that they're making money, I think we need to tax them more. Mm -hmm. And um, they weren't there to help when they weren't making money or there yeah. were marginal economics in the decade before. So I think those dramatic policy moves are, they absolutely handcuff and, and uh, energy companies, right? They don't want to spend capital. They get worried about what, you know, what's the next policy change that's going to, um, come at me. So I think we want not a lot of policy change. We want stable policy. We want, right. um, and then also I'd, I'd really like to see policy that helps our energy companies understand what they're going to be 10 years from now. So what are the ways that the government can uh, provide policy that helps to say, how are we going to do carbon capture and sequestration so we can handle emissions? Um, how can the, how can the federal government backstop some of those demand needs? How do we support LNG? That would be certainly very good. Mm -hmm. um, how could we uh, how could we support um, hydrogen as a future economy, and what does that look like? And and start to unleash the capital of energy companies into those issues too, because that's going to help us ten years from now as well. 
Yeah, that's and and that's that's interesting. Uh, there was a story in the in the London. I'm in London, Ontario, uh, in in the in the free press this morning about um, you know them wanting to turn Sarnia into a big hub for uh, for hydrogen, uh, and because uh, of course there's a whole lot of uh, uh, chemical processing in Sarnia yes. area for this. Those who may not know, uh, well, I used to live there. And uh, you could smell it from uh, 10 miles away. But uh, <laughs> when the wind was but, right. <laughs> but that's the, like, as we go to decarbonize Canada, for example, mm-hmm. lower our emissions and lower our carbon consumption, right? Those big hubs, you know, outside of Edmonton, and the refinery and chemical complexes outside of Edmonton, you look to the Sarnia, uh, you look to Sarnia, all those conglomeration of, um, honestly, they're high consumers and high emitters and a lot of heavy industry goes in there. That's that's the place in which we can make big changes on Canada's emissions, right? So those are the places that we're going to see big investments by the energy companies. Those energy companies own land in Sarnia with facilities yeah. on them that could be repurposed. They could be re-engineered. We could see them. We could see those energy companies doing more biofuels, for example, taking canola into uh, biodiesel or bio airline fuel, for example, right? That would be a great way to start to decarbonize our airlines uh, or to decarbonize our long haul transportation. And that's something that could be done. Honestly, an internal combustion engine can work on that today. And we don't need to get rid of all of our trains, get rid of all of our uh, long haul semis and get rid of all of our airplanes. Right. So it's a that's a real natural step. And so I think we're going to see biofuels invested in there. And we're also going to see, you know, hydrogen as a fuel to help those big facilities run. Yeah, they do it all the time. They're always it seems like they're always ripping those refineries apart or at least or at least part of them and and, and refurbishing them. It's, it's just an, an ongoing process, although it's I, a challenge. Those I think it also takes great. a lot of maintenance just to keep those things going. The number of pipes, holy big, smoke. heavy assets, and they're yeah. always trying to make them better, more efficient and lower emissions. And that's what yeah. they should and yeah. you can pull you can pull the hydrogen out of uh is it natural gas that it's easiest to get it out of so uh yeah you can do you know the two big ways are you can get hydrogen out of natural gas yeah right? and but then what you do have left is you have co2 we don't yeah. want to just release that out into the so that's where we need carbon capture yeah so you can go and capture that co2 and inject it back into the earth and put it into a natural gas reservoir that held natural gas and is now depleted so that's one big way and the other big way is you use massive amounts of electricity and water and water right right and you can get hydrogen that way right but you have to have a lot of electricity and how do you um, make the electricity (laughs) well in in nuclear or wind yeah right in jurisdictions like british columbia and quebec that have a lot of hydropower right well that hydropower could be used at night to do this really easily right while we're not running uh, our houses and stuff like that, right? But the one thing we know about the pressures that are going to come on our decarbonization journey as a country is we're going to electrify a lot of things. So I don't think we're going to have a lot of ample electricity. We already struggle to make the grid run at you know in its hottest days and our coldest days um, in Canada. Uh, we don't have a lot of ample, so we need to find new generation that would allow us to to have generation to still continue to run our economies, but then we could take electricity through uh, water if we're willing to um, do that as well to get hydrogen too. So there's there's a lot of ways to do hydrogen, and and but they they take big capital, big capital, and yeah. you got to create a demand first. What is it? A one point? Uh, I I believe it was a one point six billion dollar plant is happening in Alberta. 
something like that for hydrogen. So that, I believe I read something about that. So that's a great. So that's a great example. Is this, is there are uh, new new investments going in this in into um, into understanding the technology and implementing the technology all across the country. Um, I think it's going to be, you know, that that investment is a small one compared to what it would really be when we start to get big, big, big hydrogen and the need to power all of the Sarnia facilities, for example. But yeah. it certainly gives you an in indication of how big, expensive and complicated it's going to be. Well, the 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 gas and the oil industry, it's it, 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 I think it surprises a lot of people how big of a role they're going to have to play in 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 a lot of the green energy technology that comes along. Um, I think it's uh, it's it's more they probably haven't all, all got the credit that's all the investments that have already happened. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, I think it's going to be even more important as it goes along, and especially if you know hydrogen is a hydrogen is a way to store and and, and re-release electricity becomes a thing, yeah. uh, which I think is the sort of the idea uh that um that that they're going to have a major role to play in that too because because storing volatile gases is pretty much what sarnia yeah. does yeah uh, and and, uh, and not everyone can do it yeah and they have the balance sheets yeah and they have the engineers and they have the technical capability to do it right yeah so, absolutely and they know how to commercially get stuff done so um it is going to be kind of the energy sector that's going to unleash a lot of those changes and on and on prices here in the here in the rental industry, we have we have reason to want lower fuel prices, but we also have reason to want that continued investment because uh, a lot of my people listening to this right now are in Alberta. Uh, they are rental stores that absolutely love to rent stuff to the oil sands, and uh, and it is a, it a it's a great business for everybody. And uh, certainly in the in the last boom, uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Alberta rental stores grew a lot and did very well. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there had to be a readjustment when the prices yeah. came back down, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great business for us. So, uh, we, uh, we have kind of, a, I, I get, ah, we, we always win in the rental industry when there's, when there's a, when there's a disaster, we, we rent stuff when there's, when the prices are down, we, we, we make more money when the prices are up, we get more business. It's, it's, it, it, it always wins. So to, to your, to your comment there though, like our OSNs guys are going to continue to spend money. Right. Mm -hmm. They are they have a lot of production that need to deliver to the US and they'll continue to do that. We're not going to see big increases. We're not going to see big investments in new projects necessarily. Okay. But with the caveat of one big thing, and if you've watched, um, if you look in the news and do some reading on pathways. Now, pathways is the oil sands, all the oil sands producers have come together. Essentially, all the oil sands producers have come together and say we want to be net zero by 2050, meaning we have to do massive carbon capture projects we're going to continue to produce our oil but we're also going to solve all the technology needs to capture all the co2 emissions that come from our facilities and inject them away so um the billions of dollars that pathways will spend to do that could be significant so they're looking they have tax relief from the federal government tax credits that are going to support uh some of those investments but unleashing that project uh, that's oil sands again, right? That's that's pipelines. Absolutely, that that's great to hear. To so, um, what we need to see. So, when you look at that, when I said earlier that we need policy that's going to unleash that investment, we need policy that's going to unleash. Hey, guys, like these oil sands facilities are. We need to know that they're going to be here for the next 30, 40 years, and if they are, we can invest in managing the emissions and make sure that they're net zero to go along with it. And and I think as an energy mix for Canada, that's a great story. And we got to have consistent policy that's going to support that investment. 
and we could see a, a very robust oil sands industry doing investments on managing their emissions and their production that goes along with it. Couldn't agree more. And uh, Alberta rental people, if you're hearing that, uh, if this was an attempt to be net zero or have net zero projects, uh, maybe try to get 10% of your fleet electrified uh, because uh, when they're when they're renting stuff uh, for those projects, they're probably going to want to be able to say that they're not making emissions. Great comment. To, to Great do. comment right? Patrick. Yeah. So you, you, you have to look at that, although I, I know the damn thing's going to give out on you in the cold. But uh, oh well, you know, try to try to try to try to have extras on hand or something. I don't, I don't, I don't know how we how we deal with that yet. But we're 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 getting there. Listen, Andrew, this has been a great discussion, and 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 I really thank you for your for your insights on uh, on uh, everything to do with the oil and gas industry. I know I went quite a bit of far afield of prices, but hey, how long can you talk about prices, right? We got it. No problem. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, there's lots and if you look, if you look over my shoulder, the sun came up today. So I see. Yes, the sun is finally coming up in Calgary, which is which is nice to see. Um, Andrew, if people want to, I've I've made several references to the white paper. If people want to see that and want to download it, where do they go to do that? Yeah, if you if you deliver if you visit Deloitte.ca and and you look for oil and gas prices, you'll find it pretty quickly. So, fantastic, fantastic. It's, it's a it's a great read uh, and not too long of a read. Uh, so uh, everybody uh, everybody jump on and and take a look at that. Uh, Andrew Botterill, Deloitte, thank you very much for joining Thanks, me on Counter Talks. Great. Thanks for joining us for Counter Talks. You can find Counter Talks episodes online at CanadianRentalService.com or on the major podcasting services. Counter Talks is a presentation of Canadian Rental Service Magazine.